welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome into Chit Chat Money. My name is Brett Schaefer, and I'm joined by my co-host, Ryan Henderson. Today is our Tuesday not-so-deep-dive episode where we analyze one stock by covering its business model, financials, ownership, future growth opportunities, and much more. The not-so-deep-dive title is a bit in jest as we try to go a little bit in-depth on the company, not just going over the superficial stuff, not just saying, hey, this trades at a 15 PE, let's buy it. We're going to try to hopefully help you learn more about this business and get a better perspective on the company so you can decide whether to research it further, put it on your watch list, or you know, nothing wrong with saying, this one's not for me. And today, we are covering Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines as our airline and cruise theme continues. We're kind of on a travel theme this month. Uh, last week, we covered Ryanair. Next week, we're covering Hawaiian Airlines. It's a short month, so we're just doing three of those. If you want to look at the charts and basically all the show notes, any graphics we're going to include throughout this episode, I would recommend subscribing to our free newsletter. The link is in the show notes, and you can find that over on Substack. It really helps along with these Tuesday episodes. Ryan, I'm going to let you get to it, but first... I want to talk about our sponsor for the last month, and that is the Science of Hitting Research Service. You're going to hear an ad again 20 minutes into the episode. So for whatever reason, you missed this part, you skipped this part, you'll hear that again. We just want to reiterate, though, that today, as you're listening to this, the morning of Tuesday the 19th, it is the last day to sign up for the Science of Hitting before his research service price rises. We love Alex. He's been on the show plenty of times. He really has a great grasp of doing fundamental research, providing a ton of value, especially for, it could be anyone from a small investment fund, a group of people like ourselves that you know would like to have some maybe outsourced analysis and they can't afford a whole team of researchers. It really, really helps. He covers the technology industry, the media industry, consumer goods, covers a lot of retailers. For example, he's been on the show before talking Airbnb. He's been on here talking Roku. Very, very sharp on all those markets. Ryan, anything to add on that before we get started talking Royal Caribbean? Again, today is the last day. So check it out before the price goes up. Yeah, no, I I think you hit the nail on the head. I know we go long sometimes on these intros and people tend to skip, but if you're listening right now, this research service is truly worth it. We Brett and I actually pay ourselves. And if you do buy it today, you're going to get it before the price increase uh, for life as long as you're a subscriber. So uh, highly recommend doing it today if you're going to do it. But let's talk Royal Caribbean Cruises. Last week, you tried to uh, convince me out of this, but I think it's good that we went through this because it's kind of this is my first time really looking into a cruise operator. And so I actually had a lot of fun doing this and it's it can certainly be a good business. There's some unique advantages that cruise operators have that I'll talk about in a second. But as for Royal Caribbean specifically, they are the largest cruise operator by market cap. 
they are the second largest on a passenger volume and revenue basis behind Carnival Cruise Lines and I think second largest on an enterprise value basis because Carnival has a little more debt. But for a little context on how the industry actually works, like the airline industry, the cruise operators themselves don't do the manufacturing. So there are three major shipyards across the globe. There might be some more, but I think there's three big ones that Royal uses. And those are, I mean, building a ship of this size is very difficult. And it obviously requires a lot of capital and the right equipment to do so. You know, think about maybe even similar to building an airline or airplane, that kind of thing. So um, they use the major shipyards and they there's these really long lead times. So there's really good visibility into what the fleet is going to look like. You know how many cruise ships are being built at a given time. So uh, I guess forecasting capacity for these cruise line operators are pretty easy um, or is pretty easy because you, you know how many you know how many ships they have, you know how many uh, bedrooms are in each ship, or they call them berths, and you know how many they're going to add in the next couple of years. But let's talk about Royal Caribbean a little more specifically. They operate three different brands, and combined, they have a fleet of 64 ships and more than 150,000 berths, but it's just a fancy word for, it's just ship speak for uh, a place to sleep. Uh, but the three brands are Royal Caribbean International, which is the largest individual cruise brand in the world, Celebrity Cruises, and Silver Seas Cruises. Royal Caribbean themselves, they've got... So the Royal Caribbean International brand accounts for 63% of all of Royal Caribbean, the the conglomerate, uh, all of their room capacity, and it's 26 ships. These are more the family-friendly type experiences. Uh, a lot more fun things to do, I guess you could say, the kind of thing where you're going to want to bring your kids on. Um, whereas Celebrity Cruises is a little more in the luxury aisle, I guess you could say. And it's the second largest segment for Royal Caribbean. They have 15 ships, account for 22% of overall capacity. And it's a little more, they describe it as a destination rich itinerary. So I think this is more kind of the parents, fine dining, enjoy a nice luxury vacation. And then the last one is Silver Seas Cruises. So these are their smallest ships, but they are ultra luxury. I guess maybe I should have thrown this in the anecdotal evidence, but I watched a video one time, not even knowing what that this was like a vlog of a Silver Seas Cruise, but these are super high end, like top-notch facilities, really like fine dining experiences, and they go to really exotic areas. So places like Antarctica or the Galapagos Islands, they're really expensive. They only account for 3% of the actual capacity for Royal Caribbean, but because the tickets are so much higher priced, they make up a little, a little more in revenue. And the last thing, they they have a 50% joint venture with a German cruise operator, but it's not too material to Royal Caribbean's results. So I'm not going to focus too much on them today, but those are the basics. Those are the brands. And then in terms of operating a cruise, Royal Caribbean makes money in two ways. There's passenger tickets and onboard revenue. So when we think about passenger tickets, most people know this. Um, It's pretty straightforward, but I think there's two things that are maybe unique and worth mentioning. So first of all, Royal Caribbean relies a lot on travel advisors for sourcing passengers, and they give those advisors incentives and commissions. Direct sales are growing pretty quickly, but when you have the travel advisors, it's going to be kind of a is when you're giving them the commissions, it's going to be a bit of a 
I guess, cost of revenue hit. And then the second one that I think is worth mentioning is reserving a spot on a trip requires a deposit upfront, which are those are typically made in, I think, six months to a year in advance. So at the end of last year, they had more than $4 billion in customers' deposits. They're able to earn interest on that in the meantime. Um, and gives them a working capital advantage. Yeah, exactly. And then that, I guess that, uh, that passenger ticket revenue accounts for two thirds of the overall business. And then the onboard revenue that just includes the sale of all things on the ship that aren't included in the actual ticket price. So things like gambling revenue, sale of alcoholic drinks, some are kind of bottomless, some aren't, um, gift shop items, internet services. They use Starlink. They talk a lot about that. Um, that makes up about a third. Yeah. The main thing is casino and alcohol. Yeah, for those add-ons. Yeah. Oh, plus the uh, the excursions. Yeah. And then there are also a couple of unique advantage advantages that cruise lines benefits from. So first off, they get cheap debt most of the time when they buy a new ship from what are called export credit agencies. These typically account for 80% of a ship's cost. So the, it's like these local governments, export agencies will give them cheap debt for up to 80% of the boat's cost. And I think they're doing that because if you're the local governing body and your shipyard employs a bunch of people, you want them having as much volume as possible. So giving them lenient terms for really the few cruise line operators that are actually out there is a way to keep those people employed. The other benefit is that there are virtually no taxes. So Here's a snippet from Cruise Law News. It says, cruise lines take advantage of an obscure provision in the US tax code, which permits shipping companies to evade taxes by incorporating overseas and flying the flags of foreign countries. That's why Carnival is incorporated in Panama, and that's why Royal Caribbean is incorporated in Liberia. So cheap debt and no taxes, I'd say those are two pretty big benefits. Would you agree? Yeah, I get a little bit nervous about being incorporated in Liberia, right? Because they could, I mean, it just, there could be things that are hidden, right? They have some off balance sheet stuff that we didn't really, we're not going to hit on this episode. We can't really do a full investigation into a bunch of off balance sheet stuff there, but yeah, it's definitely an advantage from the tax perspective. You pay no taxes. That's, that's a huge advantage versus competitors in the, or in the travel space and, and vacation space. But when you like, if you're incorporate, I, I just come back to, if you're incorporated in Liberia, I just get nervous automatically. Yeah, I will say they've been incorporated in Liberia since the '80s, so that maybe gives a little bit of a confidence boost that it, they've been doing this for a long time. It's not like there's going to be. I think it's less likely if you've been doing it for forty years. There's less likely to be some newfound repercussion, and they can uh, always move there. It seems like they could always move to Panama. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's not specifically Liberia. It Panama's be the same. It just it just makes me nervous just because of the laws in those countries uh, compared to the United States from a business perspective. But yeah, it's probably not the end of the world. And clearly, people are going on these ships. You can see them. You know, they're not faking anything here. It would be more of a, a you know hidden liabilities, hidden whatever, hidden lawsuits, stuff like that. I guess we probably should have checked them. I assume they're audited by one of the U.S. Big Four, but that it doesn't okay. really matter. Sometimes <laughs> yeah. you can still hide stuff from them. Anyway, let's let's go through the history. So, Royal Caribbean 
was founded in 1968 by a hospitality entrepreneur from Wisconsin named Ed Stefan, I believe. It might have been Stephen, Stephen, Stephen. I think it's Stefan. Stefan could be, yeah, yeah. Ed Stefan. Ed worked, well, he served in the Korean War as a radar technician in the Army. And then when he came back, he kind of worked his way up in the Miami hospitality business. Eventually, he ended up joining a small cruise line. And I don't know what inspired him, but he had ambitions to build his own cruise line. So he traveled to Oslo, Norway in search of some backers. There's apparently a big shipping culture out there. Uh, and so maybe that was kind of the motivation to head out there. Um, here's a quote from his adventure. And I will say Ed, Ed passed away in 2019. There's a good kind of article about who he was and uh, some, I don't know, some just nice pieces on how he built the business. Uh, it says, I went to Norway to look for principles to build new safe ships. I was having a lot of bad luck. One evening, it was snowing like crazy. And someone said, there's a guy who basically sleeps during the day and drinks brandy at night, but he's very interested in this. That night apparently turned into a meeting uh, with Ed and then three Norwegian ship owners named Anders Wilhelmsen, which I believe is still the largest shareholder today, Sigurd Skaugen, is, yeah. yep. and Gotas Larsen. Those would eventually become the co-founders of Royal Caribbean along with Ed. And from there, Ed kind of designed the first ship. It set sail from Miami in 1970, and they began to slowly add new ships over the years. It's really been kind of just – so they've been around since, what, 1970, so 53 years. They have 64 ships. Some have been retired, but it's been kind of a steady grind of adding new ships, adding new capacity – and kind of building up that brand and adding new routes as well. And there's obviously land excursions when you get on a cruise. So they've been kind of trying to incorporate that over the years. It's been a pretty simple blueprint, I'd say, in terms of how to expand the the business. Pour money into new ships and make them bigger. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's hey, people like it. People like it. Uh, I'll talk industry and competition. It's a very interesting industry, especially because of the pandemic. So there's a lot of dynamics here that I'm sure we'll discuss. So in 2023, the cruise industry revenue is projected to hit about $25 billion. So not a giant industry. I mean, it's nowhere near the size of the hotel industry, but still fairly large. And then if you look at market penetration, which I think is quite interesting, I'll try to include maybe some charts around this going historically, uh, if we can, if we can find some data in the newsletter. But They give this in the annual report, and it's the market penetration for the three key markets, uh, which are North America, Europe, and Asia Pacific from 2015 to 2019, so pre-pandemic. In North America, market penetration grew from 3.36% to 3.89%. Europe was 1.25% to 1.4%. Asia Pacific was 0.08% to 0.2% over that time period. So as you can see, the most mature market or the most engaged market in the cruise industry is North America but all the key markets are growing. I think here's the discussion question I have is, should we expect the industry to grow along with growing GDPs in these regions? Essentially saying, as these countries get wealthier, should we expect the cruise industry to grow? Yeah, I was kind of spending some time thinking about this, which is like, is this a secular growth industry? If so, why? And then on the flip side, is there the risk that maybe it's tied to kind of just good economies during I, that period? I think it's more the latter. 
But obviously, the last hundred years, economic growth around the world has been very strong. So, you know, more people have discretionary. Well, in that income. sense, everything's a secular industry. <laughs> everything's yeah, secular that's, growth. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess maybe I'm using. It's it, not like an industry transition to streaming video, right? Where you're. Yeah. It feels like more. I guess this is anecdotal, but more and more people are going on cruises, but like. I guess there's some evidence of that in the numbers, but it's kind of hard to tell. You probably have to look at really long-term trends. I'm sure it's gone up over time. but Yeah, it's definitely gone up over time. I mean, it has grown, but I think I wonder how much it's outpaced GDP growth or if it's very similar. I think also as these ships get bigger, as they build these massive, like the the ship I'm going to talk about today that they're in the process of of taking in right now. um, The memes. the the one that is yeah yeah i mean it's massive uh, 5700 bedrooms i think one of their biggest i'm sure the cost to get on those sh- ships as a percentage of people's the, the median income has probably come down because the cost to operate that ship operate one huge ship is a little cheaper than operating four ships a fraction of the size because I mean, the yeah, ships have certainly sense. gotten bigger over time. I, it's kind of a weird way, roundabout way of thinking of it. But I would imagine the the cost to get on the ships has kind of come down. Yeah, affordability. Yeah, for sure, for sure. It's not a very expensive trip, at least the shorter ones, especially if you live by one of the ports. But if we want to go back to the industry, uh, one note that I think we'll talk about throughout the episode is that typically companies have to plan their shipbuilding eighteen to twenty eight months in advance. There's a ton of forward planning in the industry. I would make a note of that any listener as we kind of talk about the cyclicality and how COVID affected them, stuff like that. Now, as Ryan mentioned, there are two unique characteristics that make it cheaper than traditional travel. He already talked about not paying taxes, but I would also have on here, since they're in international waters, they really have a global pool of labor to go after to manage these ships. So they have very cheap labor compared to traditional hotels and you know, on average, right? And the majority of their workers, and this is data from their annual report, are from India, Southeast Asia, so places like the Philippines, Indonesia, those Southeast Asian countries that there are quite a few of, and then India. So that's an advantage. I don't know how sustainable that one is. And again, the tax loophole is just a loophole that could be closed at some point, right? And I think there's been a lot of lobbying to get it closed. But for the time period, it gives them a bit of an economical advantage versus other travel and entertainment options. Wait, sorry. What's this from? The cheap labor part? It's from their annual report. Didn't it say like 60% of their workforce is Caucasian, North American? No, that's corporate. I'm saying- Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Makes sense. So if we look at their competition, it would be uh, pretty, it's pretty easy one to understand. You have Carnival, Norwegian, and then everyone else. It's a very, like, it's probably a case study market where it's almost exactly how you kind of look at it. You have the leader, Carnival, 40% market share, Royal Caribbean, just over 20% market share, and the Norwegian at just over 10% market share. If you add those up, the companies dominate the industry by volume. If we look at revenue, there are going to be some other luxury competitors out there that'll compete with the Silver Seas and stuff like that. But if you look at the traditional Royal Caribbean line, there won't be that much competitor. And then there are some upstarts, which would be like Disney and Virgin that should be watched out for, but they're today much, much smaller than Royal Caribbean's consolidated brands. Another discussion question I had that maybe we can talk about now 
is do the barriers to entry with the heavy capital expenditures and and the the big timeline, right? You need a lot of capital to get a ship onto a route. You need a lot of workers, thousands of workers. Do does that give these companies an advantage? Yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously it, the average ship runs in what half a billion dollars. A lot of for, money yeah. to buy a new ship. So not a lot of people can afford that. I think too, like actually operating these ships is difficult in its own right. You know, having the workforce, um, knowing how to treat the customers or the the onboard patrons and the, or uh, the gambling halls. I mean, you're you're running a casino too. Like, I mean, it, you know, there's some real barriers to entry just in terms of like knowing how to efficiently run one of these things. So, um, I think there's some high barriers to entry. I think that's why you see the consolidation over the years, unless you have a really differentiated experience like a Disney, because they can leverage their own IP. It's got to be hard to break into this. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, And I don't know how someone could start from scratch. Well, they probably could if they had enough money, but I'm, you know, that limits the amount of people that could get into this and and want to get into this because it is a hard business, which on the one hand, you're like, okay, well, it's a hard business. Is that a stock I should buy? But on the other hand, the competition might not be that sharp. Hey, everyone. Before we move on, I want to talk about our friend, Alex Morris. He founded the Science of Hitting Investment Research Service. And one of the benefits of being hosts on a podcast is that typically your sponsors will comp you the service. That whatever they're selling, they'll usually give you an example of the product. Alex did that for the first year with his product uh, a couple, I think it was a couple years ago. And since then, Brett and I have both decided to buy it ourselves. We are loyal followers of his service. Alex spent a decade working as a buy side equities analyst before launching this thing. And it is really, really high quality equity research. And he's 100% transparent with all his portfolio decisions. I really think this is kind of the best you can get for his price. Right now, it's $349 a year. But earlier this week, Alex announced a pricing change for the Science of Hitting Investment Research Service, the first increase since it really launched. And the pricing change will go into effect on Tuesday, September 19th, after the market close. Importantly, all subscribers will be grandfathered in at their current subscription price in perpetuity. So as I've mentioned before, we're both longtime subscribers. We highly recommend checking it out before those price changes go into effect on Tuesday. Anyways, I think that's enough. Brett, anything to add? I would say that if you're listening to this episode, it is probably on Tuesday the 19th. So you should check it out today. If you like Alex, you've probably heard him on the show before. If you like his research, this is the time to to try it out. Subscribe and you can get grandfathered in with that lower price for life. We really think it's worth the money. So check out the service at thescienceofhitting.com. That's thescienceofhitting.com. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. 
Find Reese's now at a store near you. Now, if you look at management and ownership, Royal Caribbean is now run by Jason Liberty, who became CEO in early 2022. Uh, He was previously the CFO and has generally worked in their finance department for 16 years. Before that, he was at an accounting firm. I forgot to write it down, but I believe it was KPMG. So really, if you look at this, you got an accountant running this company. Could be the best thing right now, given the balance sheets, you know, difficulties they have. It seems like he helped them stay afloat, not go through bankruptcy, as Ryan will probably talk about it in more detail during the balance sheet section. So it seems like, you know, he has a decent track record here and they were in a really tough spot and he might be the best guy out there or person out there to run this thing. If you look at their executive compensation, um, I believe that... Well, this may be the most complicated compensation packages out there. I There were so many variables and there were so many different things that people were looking at that I was like, I don't think any of these executives could recite to you how they get paid because, man, I got confused just looking at all this stuff. But one thing to note, I think this is the big investor takeaway. And it's an example, I believe, of misaligned incentives is that if you look at their comp stuff, the big thing that pops out is one of their largest uh, performance compensation metrics is adjusted earnings per share. Now, if I look to the definition of their adjusted operating income, which is just right in the annual report, you just kind of control left that you can really easily find it. It has in 2022, 13 adjustments. For example... And there's plenty of these like this quote. This is what gets adjusted out. Here's the quote loss contingency recorded in connection with the ongoing Havana docs litigation, inclusive of related legal fees and costs. So they're basically taking out a lot of legal fees They're basically taking out a lot of like damage stuff. They're taking out a lot of other things, which don't make sense to me. So you you incur those charges as a shareholder, but they don't incur it as an executive. Right. That brings me, uh, that's a great transition to my last point here, which it makes me worried that Royal Caribbean executives will get paid by the company for growing their adjusted earnings per share while not actually creating much value for shareholders. Um, That would be the big takeaway for me in this section. If we look at their ownership table, it's very interesting. As Ryan mentioned, the Wilhelmson family are still sizable outside owners. Uh, and there's a lot of owners here that are not index managers. For example, we have Capital International Investors, 12% owners, Capital Research Global Investors, 11%. Don't know if that means much, but this isn't just going to be your typical index-heavy shareholder table. Insider ownership is quite small, I believe. But that, I think that's enough talking for me. Ryan, let's hit earnings. Yeah, the other thing I'll say is you know, you look at the proxy statement, I don't. So I end up seeing this for the first time a lot when when you report it. But I could just tell there was going to be misaligned incentives when you listened to some of the executives speak on the conference call. I was like, I just have a feeling they're going to be wasteful. A lot of adjustments, a lot of adjustments, a lot of adjustments. A lot of adjustments. One of the one of the cruise line executives was on the call was like yeah i'm in my swimwear right now on the conference room in the conference that was, room that, on boat. Uh, that that was honestly kind of funny it, it was funny it, i don't know if you should say that when you're you're balanced like you have 20 billion dollars in debt and are generating no earnings but 
Interesting. It was, like, it was interesting. That that's for sure. I would okay. I, uh, maybe we'll share that. It was great. It was a great quote from from that. Well, we can. Yeah, we can kind of talk about that after we discuss earnings. So, as you can imagine, COVID hit the cruise industry really hard. So, year over year comps are kind of meaningless right now. For example, the trailing twelve month revenue was up like one hundred fifty percent. Obviously, that's not norm normal. So, it's going to be you want to kind of comp it against twenty nineteen and just really gauge how many uh, cruise goers do they get relative to their capacity and are they able to raise prices and control costs? So over the last 12 months, they did $12 billion in revenue. That's finally back above their 2019 levels. Prior to COVID, Royal Caribbean was averaging 18% operating margins. Keep in mind, operating margins don't include interest expenses. Interest expenses are a big part of this business because especially now, They've got a lot of debt. Their enterprise value, I think, is more than twice their market cap, or roughly twice. So, a um, lot, a lot of debt. The most recent quarter, they reported a one hundred five percent load factor. Load factor is just the passengers divided by the capacity. And so, people might think, like, you know, how does that get above one hundred five percent? Most of these rooms are designed for two people. So, if three people occupy a room, it can push it above one hundred percent. They're still selling tickets for that. Um, so, it, that's kind of the difference there. They did $1.4 billion in operating cash flow this quarter on $3.5 billion in revenue. Just kind of looking big picture here, they've raised prices a lot. They have really strong demand across pretty much all their itineraries, and it's a really good time for them. And they're using all that cash to pay down the debt quickly. So um, we're going to talk about this in a second with the balance sheet, but they added a lot of debt during COVID. Prior to COVID, they had roughly $10 billion in net debt, or sorry, total long-term debt. Now they have roughly, well, roughly $20 billion. So they doubled their debt position in a matter of really two years. Now, and this it, might seem uh, anathema. I think I'm using that word correctly. If not, I think people will understand it to what we usually talk about, but- do you think that they should go lean more into stock-based compensation uh, over just to, to minute, given where the stock is, right? It's super elevated and their need to conserve cash. I feel like increasing SBC might be the right move here. Yeah. And they have done some equity offerings. So shares have gone up. I think that's the right move. Share price has risen a lot because there was so much uncertainty and they're kind of coming out of this with a lot of travel demand. So um, they're, they're in a good spot and I think they're doing the right thing in terms of capital allocation. But well, let's talk about the balance sheet first here and then we can talk about management's approach. So liabilities, they have pretty much $20 billion in total debt. They've done a really good job restructuring some of that or refinancing it so that it's termed out most of it. 56% of it is due after 2026. So they've got time to pay this down. The vast majority of the debt is fixed rate, but the interest on some of it is quite high. The weighted average interest rate was just over 7%, but they've got some variable rate debt that they've worked hard to pay down quickly. Um, customer deposits is now up to $5.7 billion. So they're, they're able to earn a little bit of interest income, but it's nowhere near their interest expenses. And then the they used to have like, uh, well, they've kept their cash balance pretty lean as they pay down this debt. So they've got just over $700 million in cash. 
last quarter, for example, they had $1.4 billion in operating cash flow. They spent $1.6 billion to pay down their debt. So they, they're really working to kind of restructure this balance sheet into a more comfortable position. The other thing that's maybe worth mentioning, I'm not sure how valuable this is, but they've got $30 billion worth of property and equipment, which is the value of their ships. The difficult, I mean, when when you think of illiquid, <laughs> this is maybe as is as illiquid yeah. <laughs> as it gets is a billion dollar ship. So maybe if they had to raise capital, they could try to sell some of their ships to a different cruise line operator or something like that. But I mean, it's you know that's a difficult thing to sell, and any buyer will know that. No, they'll know why they're buying it, and they'll know that you know they they can get a good deal on it. So. Uh, Anyway, it's just on the balance sheet, thirty billion dollars worth of property and equipment. It's you know, it's it's meaningful in in any sort of a liquidation scenario. Prior to COVID, they were doing just under four billion dollars in operating cash flow a year. They've done three point two billion over the last twelve months. So, in total, as far as the balance sheet goes, if you think they can get back to their previous operating cash flow levels, which I do think is achievable. Uh, it looks like they're well on their path to do that. You're looking at basically a net debt to operating cash flow multiple of five times. They're in a more manageable position, but if you listen to the conference call and you listen to some of the analysts and even the executives, they're like, it feels like they've maybe gotten a little ahead of themselves because they're like, all the analysts are like, wow, congrats guys. What a quarter. This is awesome. Like we're, you know, it's, we're great. We're in a great position. The executives are like, yep, yep. I got my swimwear on. I'm on the cruise ship right now, probably comped by the shareholders and, uh, and yeah, life is good, but you're still running at five times leverage. Uh, Some of that is variable rate. So if rates go up and the consumer gets pinched, you are back to a very precarious position. So I, I don't know. I kind of didn't. It feels like people are cheering a little early. Yeah, I'd say two things there. One, if you have the president getting some anecdotal evidence on the ships, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. But Ryan's probably right about those downsides. There might not be the right moment. I guess they're excited. They're optimistic, and it's better than just being locked away in your corporate headquarters. Other thing, I would look at interest expense as a percentage of operating income. I'll probably try to make a chart of that for the show notes, uh, which you can get by signing up uh, to the newsletter. And the last quarter was quite high, even though they supposedly had some you know, record numbers and really a lot of the earnings power is just going to pay down this interest. So yeah, there's a lot more progress to be had. If you kind of look at a chart of their total debt, it's coming down, but it's going to be until they get to a more manageable position where they can actually generate cash and not just have it pay interest expense. It'll probably be multiple years, two to three, I'd guess. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, valuation, tricky one here. Uh, I'm going to use a few different things. And I would first note, always use enterprise value, given the high debt load here. If you look at what we probably want typically to use for a company like this would be EV to earnings, just because they have high interest expense and depreciation and amortization is real. It's kind of meaningless right now because they have basically $0 in trailing total month earnings. If we look at EV to free cash flow, it is 24.7. Now, typically you would say, oh, why don't you use that? That's the better term of cash earnings. But you need to remember that this is being greatly helped by an inflection of customer deposits. So this would really overstate their true earnings power. Yeah, customer deposits were like two times what they were last year. Exactly, exactly. They're getting, you know, it's a working capital advantage, but it's like saying the deposits that Airbnb got in when they have that one quarter that has crazy free cash flow is like their true earnings potential. It's not. Uh, last one, I think this one is the most indicative of where they're actually trading right now is EV to operating income with a 15% margin. So if we look, for example, pre COVID, they got slightly higher than that, but hey, let's just be a little bit conservative. So if we take EV, the operating income trailing 12 months at a 15% margin, they're trading at 24.6. And remember though, this is not including the interest expense. So <laughs> I think so, to sum things up, the stock is still expensive based on the trailing numbers. Yeah. And, and you know, it's going to grow quickly. I imagine that the, should, the, it should. Ne- the next it 12 should. months should be higher than the trailing 12 months, but Still, I mean, uh, interest expect the interest expense is huge. The one good thing here is that pre-tax profit and after-tax profit there isn't much of a difference. So sometimes you have to use net profit as opposed to earnings before taxes. Yeah, it doesn't make much of a difference here. Let's do anecdotal evidence. You just went on a cruise. That's Did right. Did you use okay. uh, Royal Caribbean? No, I was. Uh on a virgin cruise which is a small one that for some reason richard branson seems to think he needs to start up a company in every consumer product category but he did and i'm glad they're giving out stuff at a discount because my what we don't need to go into details there my friend got a nice discount that we all got to go on but i think they're fine my cruises are fine you know it's a nice little mix-up it's a little gluttonous but you know some people out there like scoff at cruises right and they're like, oh, this is just people that don't actually want to experience the world. They're all tightened up on this cruise. But from an investing perspective, people enjoy these things. I think that's the only thing that matters, right? And they're kind of I, like, I was gonna say they're kind of like a spectacle, like just to see a ship that big. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, but yeah, I didn't support Royal Caribbean, <laughs> and I think demand generally should grow as long as the global economy continues to get wealthier. There's a lot of people out there that do not have much disposable income. And as that, you know, the number of those people with disposable income grows, it's pretty simple to think that some of those people are going to like cruises. Some of them will go on cruises. 
One thing, though, and the health stuff we haven't brought up yet much from a discussion perspective, do you think COVID has put a permanent dent in demand for cruises? Are some people out? So I think there might be a small portion that are out, but generally, if we look at the numbers now, it's not too material. But there's definitely some people that aren't going to go anymore. Yeah, maybe. Uh, it's just not material to the business. 105% load factor last quarter. You've got more than people that are willing. <laughs> they got to come up with a different turn than that. It's, it's you know, just like occupancy, maybe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, uh, I think the surge in demand that they're currently seeing could be around for a while. Uh, a lot of people delayed their cruises during COVID. I know family that did that. I know you just went on a cruise post COVID and now you aren't really delaying it, but it's a really unique adventure. There are, there's honestly, I didn't realize this, but there is a loyal base out there that are like serial cruisers. Oh yeah. And I got family that members. is, they can, they can go direct from, they, they can go direct to Royal Caribbean sites if they ex- enjoyed that experience and there's no commission through advisor fees or advisor uh, trip advisor commission. So uh, I think they have a really solid global base of customers and uh, you know you showed the numbers earlier, it's a growing base. So I, I think cruise demand will be there for a while. Yeah. And we'll talk about how it's not necessarily linear uh, historically, but I think that's for another section. Let's talk future growth opportunities. Ryan, you teased yours, but what do you have? Yeah. Icon of the seas. This, uh, I recommend looking it up because it's a cool looking ship. It's got this like massive dome on the top. You've probably seen pictures of it. So it's, it's, it's going to be this, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be the second largest ship in their fleet. They're receiving this boat in the fourth quarter of this year, and sailings will start in January of 2024. Here's some commentary from the recent conference call. Uh, The CEO says, there is incredible demand for our new ships, and Icon will certainly break and has broken, I think, probably every record in the book. It doesn't surprise me that the ship will do well, and I'm sure people are like, yeah, no, no, obviously adding a new ship is going to help the fleet, but I mean, when you only have 64 ships, most of them are pretty small, especially relative to this one. Not not really small, but relative to Icon of the Seas. This can be substantial. Like this can add a decent chunk of revenue to their to their business. Yep. And the one thing that I think is just up in the air is are they managing the supply and demand balance, you know, optimally, right? Because they do need to have not extremely elevated prices, but they do need to have a little bit of pricing power in order for these things to work. Uh, It'll be interesting to see how popular this one is. Mine is going to be a little bit different and it's the land-based assets. So pre-COVID, they were investing heavily into exclusive land-based excursions for their passengers, for the Royal Caribbean brands. Maybe they were doing stuff with the other ones, but I'll talk specifically about Royal Caribbean. The brand is called Perfect Day. And I think the first location is Coco Bay. Kind of Coco K. Coco K? Oh. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's weird. It's I thought it was like Coco K. Whatever. It, what it is, is that it's a, you know, it's an exclusive place, right? That's off the ship. That's where people can go off the boat and have a fun, if it's, that's their definition of fun, you know, beach themed club. And it's obviously going to cost passengers more money too. 
Apparently, millions of guests have visited Perfect Day with plans to open up more of these in the Caribbean in due course. It does take a while to do this. They've only had a couple, but for the right customer, these places could be a great way, I think, to widen the value proposition for Royal Caribbean versus any upstart and increase kind of that average revenue per guest, which is important to them. I, if they have the firepower, because first they have to, you know, pay the money to get the capital expenditures to get the ships and pay down the debt. But if they have the the cash on the balance sheet available, I would like to see them invest more into these because I do think it's a great way. And yeah, it's like, a, you know, some people, again, would scoff at this stuff, but they're not the ones that are going to be taking these cruises. It's the people that enjoy this type of stuff. And I think it's a great way to widen any sort of moat they may have. All right. Yeah, I find it weird that people scoff at the cruises because it's like the it's basically well, some of the some of the like, stuff. Would, would is, you ever go to a res- go to a resort? I mean, it's not that different. <laughs> I don't know. I, as someone who just went on it, some of the stuff is a bit wild. But what? Just the gluttony, the sheer yeah, gluttony. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But like, you can make fun of it. You know, people still like it. All right, highlights and lowlights, Ryan. It's, I think it's pretty clear what there is to like about these businesses and not to like, but let's go through them one more time. Yeah, the no taxes is nice. The sa- same with the cheap debt. The other thing that I think might help a little bit, and I don't know if we've really had the chance to see it yet, is they r- bought Silver Seas, I think, in 2018. I'll confirm, uh, yeah. Okay. The, but having that like ultra luxury brand, I think will hopefully help eliminate some of the previous cyclicality issues. It's not going to completely smooth it out because Royal Caribbean International is still the biggest part of their business. But having, I think those the people that afford the ultra luxury cruises are the really high end income earners. So I don't think they would be as affected in sort of a recessionary environment. So probably Royal Caribbean's earnings or revenue could be a little smoother than they would have been previously. The other I mean, or one thing to add there, you were right. Yeah. July 2018, they took a big stake in them, but they didn't fully consolidate, which might be interesting until July 2020. So they might have been a bit distressed during that time period. And I guess now is probably the only time they're fully, you know, in control of that business. Hmm. Low lights for me. Uh, very indebted due to COVID. It, 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 I think, like I said earlier feels like people you know you know that meme of the guy shooting the three and turning around and like holding up his hands and then like it rims out it feels like there's risk that something like that happens where all the analysts are really happy the executives are really happy and if there's any sort of really bad recession obviously a lot of companies would be impacted but i think they would be extremely impacted because of their heavy debt load so i would just say they're not out of the woods yet would be my only concern yeah, and to add on to the debt part, which I don't need to talk about again in the lowlights, you have debt, you know, the high debt stuff that we talked about, cyclical industry, which I guess we may talk about at the end here, and capital intensive. That's not the best combo. The other thing is like historical returns are really not that good all time. Like, yeah. I think it's up ninefold since the 80s. Yeah, so, and no, know, it's yeah. fine. But for like, one of the leading and sort of an oligopoly, I would have thought returns to be better. In a market that's growing. Yeah, for sure. All right. My highlights, uh, we talked about it before, 
but there's a long-term industry tailwind that could really see no signs of slowing down over the next few decades, I'd say for the broader cruise industry, which would be barring a global depression, of course, which for almost all companies that will affect it, but especially I think it highlights here that it is discretionary income. So people need to have discretionary savings in order to purchase these things. Go, go look one, what happened during the great financial crisis. It's a good example. Yeah. The stock went from, I'll pull it up here, but I think I want to say 90 to $5. Pulling it up now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, man, it's almost at 90 right now. Oh, no, no, sorry, not 90. Uh, basically from like $38, $40 to... Yeah, $5 at the bottom in, in a matter of a year, purely from the financial crisis. I mean, if the consumer is pressured, like we talked about, you, if if your budget starts tightening, you probably don't need a cruise. It's probably one of the first 100%. things to go. 100%. Now, a hot, another highlight in there is that the balance sheets of at least the American consumer, which is their core market, are still quite strong. You might have seen the narratives about, you know, like depleted savings, blah, blah, blah. The recession is coming, whatever. And that might be true eventually, but right now, and let me share a screen here, a lot of those narratives you see are completely wrong. So we've seen it dip a little bit, but if we have, and I'm sharing this chart here for any viewers you can watch this, but if we have household checkable deposits and currency, which is basically just, you know, how much currency people have, we're at about four trillion. Yeah, four trillion, I believe. It's down a little bit from about four and a half trillion earlier this year, but it's significantly higher than pre-COVID, which is about a trillion. So, I mean, there's still, if we're probably not going to go given inflation and stuff like that, we're not going to go back entirely to pre-pandemic levels. But is there about two trillion dollars left in excess savings out there? I think. Yeah. And does that mean Royal Caribbean is a good business? No. But I think over the next few quarters, I would guess they're going to do quite well. I think that's a fair assumption. Should we move right. on to bull case, bear case? Yeah. Let me pull up my notes. Do I have anything else there that we haven't hit yet? Uh, oh, okay. Here's one. Here's one. One more low light. They have to make the capital outlay decisions 18 to 28 months in advance. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear why that's tough. Okay, what's your bull case, Ryan? Uh, pricing growth, moderate capacity growth, so adding new ships steadily, continued load factors or occupancy rates above 100, uh, 100%. I mean, that's kind of what's happening right now, but if that continues, I think there's a real clear path to them generating potentially a legitimate $2 billion in after-tax profits or even somewhere between one to two in the next, I'd say two to three years. So, I mean, if they're doing that, it's you're, it's potentially trading at an EV to earnings. If they're doing 2 billion, I'm what's the enterprise value today? I'm guessing it's mid teens multiple. That's not too crazy. Yeah. EV today is 44 billion, but you would assume that a lot of the debts paid down. So maybe it'd be closer to 35 or something like that. Right. In the, you know, three, maybe it'd be four to five years from now. But you really need that, I would say, probably at least $2 billion in earnings, right? Probably a little higher for the stock to work. Yeah. Or at least I mean, to be, you can't expect, you know, you can't be like betting on a 30x earnings multiple. Yeah, I agree. If, if those three things happen, I think you're going to get okay returns. I still don't think it would be a market beater. 
yeah, it's it's priced for perfection right now. And hey, if you think if you can run the numbers and say, hey, they're going to earn three, four billion dollars a year, by all means, stock looks cheap. I'm kind of in the same boat. So bear case, maybe I'll just go. I mean, it's pretty easy to see here why, you know, there's a lot of things that could go wrong. And it's why so many people are short Royal Caribbean. I mean, you can see it on Twitter. Like there's a lot of people we follow. They're like, yeah, I'm shorting Royal Caribbean here. Um, I would check out a lot of the historical VIC write-ups just for any caution around shorting Royal Caribbean because they didn't go well. Most of them didn't go well. You have a cyclical industry here with a ton of operating leverage, which means in reverse, not so great. And then a teetering balance sheet. So if even one of the next three years are bad, it's possible this is a zero. Yeah. But I would Uh, hesitate anyone to say that like, there's a lot of smart people we know that are shorting this thing. I don't know if this is the right time given the balance sheets of consumers. Yeah, the the thing that I saw that made sense was buying the bonds because it feels like those would get paid back and they're yielding. I think it was like seven and a half percent. I don't know if it's or it was yielding eleven percent, but I imagine the bond right because of the prices prices yeah. came up. Um, bear case for me, I mean, if the obviously this is a bear case for a lot of companies, but if the Fed does continue to raise interest rates even by a little. It'll hurt the variable rate debt that they have, but I think that would quickly tighten consumers' budgets more so than like some of that travel demand that they're seeing and that exuberance they seem to have right now feels like it would go away pretty quickly. Yep. All right. More interested or less interested? Ryan, final thoughts. Yeah. Less interested for me. It is kind of cool to look at and just- see a business that's so unique where every asset is so huge like they're literally you know these huge lead times every similar similar to Vegas similar to Vegas casinos honestly yeah and and they get the unique benefits of being a maritime company or, or being you know a shipping company uh I'm putting shipping in air quotes there but it was fun, but I'm just less interested. I'm I'm really less interested at this price, and I'm less interested just to, in in owning this business. It doesn't feel like it's provided good returns for shareholders over, over kind of the last four decades, and I don't see why that changes, especially at this price. Yep, I am less interested as well. If I am looking for ways to get attached to the global growth and travel and vacationing. I am much more interested in researching airlines and airports. And there's not that many airports out there, but a lot of a lot of airlines and stuff like that. I think that's a better way to play it. And call me crazy, but I like those businesses a lot better. They're not great businesses, but at the right price, which little tease, you know, we're going to study Hawaiian Airlines next week. That just is just a little more exciting to me. And I think a little bit more durable, but obviously COVID really changed that for a lot of these businesses. Next week, though, yeah, we are covering Hawaiian Airlines. Should we say Hawaiian shirts for the for the recording? I know only like ten percent of the people watch the episodes, but that's sure, I'll, I'll wear a Hawaiian shirt. I've got one. That's pretty so. easy. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, if you need one, I got quite a few. No, <laughs> I don't have that many, but I have a couple. All right.
All right, let's get to the disclosure. Remember, we are not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. We are general partners at Arch Capital and clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in, and we will see you next time.